Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello and welcome to The Sidebar, presented by True Crime Daily, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at JoshuaRitterESQ or at JoshuaRitter.com. We are recording this on Friday, January 5th, 2024. Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, in this week's episode, we thought it would be good uh, to take a look at the upcoming year. Uh, we thought there was no better way to kick off a new year than to uh, see what will be capturing the headlines of the upcoming year. And 2024 looks again to be dominated with the ongoing trials of accused Idaho doomsday murderers Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow. While Lori Vallow will stand trial for new murder charges in Arizona, her husband, Chad Daybell, faces the possibility of the death penalty in Idaho for the murders that Lori Vallow was convicted of last year. We'll also discuss the bizarre case of Sarah Boone, the Florida woman accused of murdering her boyfriend by zipping him up in a suitcase. Also, the parents of Oxford shooter um, Ethan Crumbly, are expected to be tried in a case that will be watched closely by legal experts as this case expects to break ground in prosecuting parents for the criminal acts of their children. But first, rappers making headlines for all the wrong reasons, including the retrial of YNW Melly and the murder trial facing the, uh, the man accused of Tupac Shakur's slang. This is a lot. Uh, but we thought that no one would be better to walk us through all of this than our guest and friend of the show, Natalie Whittingham Burrell, a attorney and legal analyst you can find on many platforms, including her own YouTube channel, Natalie Lawyer Chick. Natalie, Happy New Year and welcome. Joshua, Happy New Year. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, absolutely. I'm looking forward to this. We have a lot to cover, so I'm going to jump right in. And I thought what I would do is just kind of 
recap or preview some of these cases coming up in 2024. And then in rapid fire, hot take fashion, you can just tell us your thoughts on each of these. So we'll jump first to Broward County, Florida. We're following a mistrial in which jurors favored conviction nine to three. The retrial for rapper YNW Melly has been delayed until at least March as the artist again faces charges for the 2018 murder of two of his friends. Last year, Melly, born Jamel Demons, and his lawyers questioned the lead detective in the case after an assistant state's attorney testified to overhearing that officer asking a deputy to lie for him while executing a search warrant. The coming months are expected to be, to be filled with motions on both sides regarding evidence that will be allowed in the trial before jury selection begins. Natalie, this case from the get-go uh, seemed to be dominated more by prosecutorial missteps and misconduct than by the evidence really itself. Do you think that this time around the prosecution can right the ship? And do you think do you think they have enough for a conviction here? You know, it's strange because this case could have been pretty straightforward. A case of this was, you know, he was in the vehicle around the time of the shooting. We know where he was exactly after the shooting process of elimination. We don't think it was these other people for various reasons. Cut and dry, clean prosecution. But for some reason, they just were unable to do the case in a clean way. And I think that it may have tainted the case permanently. Uh, if you have lying and covering up in the investigatory part of the case, and then the prosecutor who was involved in the actual trial, who's now recused or kicked out, um, somehow participating in that, it's going to be hard to clean the taint of that in the second trial. I don't know how they do that. You know, it's been done but it does make it a lot harder. This wasn't an impossible case for them to win. So I do think um, it came across to the jury that maybe Melly wasn't getting a free uh, a fair trial. And um, if they can remove that from the new trial, then maybe they can get a conviction. Yeah, I agree with you. It, it's funny, you take away all of the noise and nonsense and you have a person they can essentially place as the only other person in that vehicle when these murders took place. You're right. It should be relatively straightforward. You know, a lot of people point to defense attorneys many times and they say, oh, well, they're 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 using tricks and they're being deceptive and they're they're trying to cause all this noise. But part of a defense attorney's job is not just to quote unquote get their client off, but to hold the prosecution. Um, to accountability. And I think they did a remarkable job of that here. And even if that takes the focus away from their, their client and puts it back on the prosecution, if the prosecution isn't doing things the right way, then that's a problem and that and their case should suffer. But I agree with you. I mean, we're talking about the lead investigator here being alleged in this misconduct. Is there any way you feel they can put this case on without that somehow rearing its ugly head again in this case? Oh, it comes up. It's going to come up in the trial because it's an impeachment of his credibility. You have extrinsic evidence. Um, another prosecutor who would testify and say that she for sure heard him pressuring or informing another officer that they needed to say something that was not the truth. That impugns his ability to be credible in anything that he did in his investigation. And so it is going to come up in the trial and it could like I said, forever taint the case, even though this should have been a relatively straightforward case. Yeah. And that has a bleed over effect. If it's your lead prosecutor and he did something as egregious as this, 
it can't help but make you question the way the rest of the prosecution and investigation was done. So that case is, I believe, in jury selection or they're beginning it soon. That case will uh, likely start sometime in the next few months. We'll keep an eye on it and, of course, update everyone. But in the meantime, let's jump over to Las Vegas, Nevada, where attorneys for Dwayne Keefe D. Davis are seeking bail for the man accused of killing rapper Tupac Shakur ahead of the 60-year-old former gangster's trial. Davis, a self-proclaimed Crip gang member, has allegedly been linked to Tupac's 1996 murder for years, even boasting in a memoir that he was in the vehicle that fired the fatal shots that killed the rapper and even allegedly provided the firearm used in the incident. Despite his alleged previous ties to street gangs, his defense attorneys are arguing that the man is not a threat to the community, nor a flight risk, but a judge will ultimately make the decision determining whether Davis will spend his time ahead of the trial, which is scheduled for June 3rd of this year. Natalie, Tupac's murder was nearly 30 years ago. And if that doesn't make me feel old or anyone else, but it also uh, presents some tremendous problems for the prosecution in that it's a 30 year old case that we're trying to, they're trying to put together and getting witnesses to testify about things that took place 30 years ago, finding evidence that existed 30 years ago. But is this case different given the fact that Davis can't seem to keep his mouth shut about his involvement since that time? Right. You know, him being unable to keep his mouth shut kind of is a two edged sword. Right. A a good defense attorney will point out that, um, you know, uh, hip hop culture and a a lot of the surrounding culture, even for non-rappers, involves braggadocio people bragging about things that they've done that they haven't necessarily done, right? Um, To make themselves look more tough than they are. He wouldn't be the first person to write a memoir, you know, just think about uh, gangsters talking about their involvement with Jimmy Hoffa just off of their word alone. Right. And so there is some defense to that, to say that there's a history of people just lying to make themselves look more uh, tough than they really are. The issue for the prosecution is going to be corroboration. Um, the jury's going to want to see. And I think the law demands outside of just someone saying I did this crime, some corroboration outside of his self-incriminating statements. But of course, as a criminal defense attorney myself, I must stress that people should stop self-snitching. Stop telling <laughs> on yourself. I just I don't get it. I mean, it's, it's the, the prosecutor's best uh, piece of evidence many times is from the defendant themselves, you know, and it's the chickens have come home to roost. And if he had kept quiet, he probably would have, you know, never seen the consequences. But I would like to see what type of corroboration they have for his words, because I really don't know whether to trust what he says or not. Yeah, no, absolutely. When I was a prosecutor, if I got handed a case and they told me, okay, you've got some surveillance video, you've got some fingerprints, you've got some eyewitnesses, Oh, and there's a confession. It's like, okay, case over. I, yeah. I I don't need to hear about all of the lead up. That's nice and that's helpful. But if you've got somebody admitting to the crime, yeah. that's usually the slam dunk that you need. But you right. bring up a very important point, which is oftentimes it's referred to as the corpus cop-out rule, meaning someone can confess to something, but you have to have corroborating evidence to link them to that, or you you shouldn't even be able to file a case. So I imagine that they have it here, but if they're thinking that they're going to go into court and just simply rely on this memoir or other things that he said, 
they might be in for a little bit of trouble because like you said, they, there's kind of a built-in defense. If they, if the, his d attorneys decide to embrace that gangster lifestyle of braggadocious and just kind of taking credit for things that you may not have been involved in. So we'll, we'll see how that pans out, but I appreciate you, you, you highlighting don't don't think this one's entirely in the bag just because he may have implicated himself in his own words. But I think like you and I both suspect that may be what actually comes back to haunt him. So right. we shall see. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. In the fast-paced world of attacking, speed is everything. And that's where the Furon 7 Plus shines. Engineered for accuracy and precision at a rapid pace, it's your secret weapon on the pitch. Experience overall comfort and precise striking, even in the game's fastest moments. The nylon outsole, with its V-shaped stud configuration, is designed for firm ground, giving you the grip you need to outmaneuver your opponents. Step up your attacking game and learn more, and purchase the Furon at NewBalance.com. Last year, the attention of the nation was captured by the gruesome trial of doomsday mom, Lori Vallow. Now in 2024, Chad Daybell, the fifth husband of Vallow, is set to face trial for his role in the murder of Vallow's children, J.J. Vallow and Tylee Ryan, as well as the murder of his first wife, Tammy Daybell. His trial will differ from that of his wife in two significant ways. First, the judge ruled last month that cameras will be allowed in the courtroom. This is significantly different from how her trial was where it was only audio and that was only released after the trial had, uh, those days in court had taken place. But more significantly, the death penalty will remain on the ta table for Chad Daybell. Meanwhile, following her conviction and subsequent sentence in Idaho, Lori Vallow's upcoming trial in Arizona has been delayed with the judge allowing additional time for her defense to prepare as prosecutors allege that she hired her brother to kill her former husband and her niece's ex-husband. This case is staggering to me with the body count that these people have left in their wake. But first of all, how will the possibility of the death penalty change Chad Daybell's case, do you think? I think it puts him, his attorney, he has, and by the way, I've watched his attorney in court in the preliminary hearings. He has a great trial attorney, uh, Chad Daybell does, but I think it corners him 
towards a plea, whereas with Lori, there wasn't really much to lose. The facts were against her, but she wasn't going to get the death penalty. So she might as well have tried to see what would happen at trial, see if some of the charges might get knocked off or something like that. Maybe some of the witnesses don't show. But with Chad, the stakes are so much higher. He really can't play around with that. So I, I'm no you know, psychic. I can't predict anything, but I would say that it's a possibility his case might end in a plea potentially, uh, just to avoid the death penalty. And that's what the death penalty does in many cases. Yeah. And I'm glad you point that out because so many people, when they're debating the idea of the death penalty, um, and not to get into all of the politics of it, but I understand how people feel strongly about this on both sides. But what's kind of ignored in that argument many times is is what a, a powerful tool it can be in ending trials early because like you said they want to avoid that at all costs and if that means that they accept a plea that may put them in prison for the rest of their lives if they're going to do that to avoid the death penalty they oftentimes will and many times that's how these trials end up i don't know in this case though i don't know if the prosecution's willing to do something like that given the kind of uh you know horrendous circumstances here and the high profile uh case that it is the other significant change is the cameras are going to be allowed in the courtroom if this does head to trial. Do you think that's going to have a significant uh, effect? And do you think that will change the dynamic of the trial? Well, I think it creates a risk. You know, I am, I'm all for cameras being in courtrooms uh, just because I like to see things myself and make my own assessments and not rely on other people. But there's still the integrity of the trial itself. And we have had some high profile trials where there's been some missteps uh, where people maybe accidentally see the jury or something like that. You want to be careful of those type of things. But by and large, I do think that sunshine is the best disinfectant. Um, but other than the increased risk of, you know, maybe of something that shouldn't be seen by the public. I don't think it will affect the actual outcome of the trial uh, because the jury is supposed to be, you know, uh, kept secret and uh, sequestered away from uh, the prying eyes of of the cameras. So uh, I'm, I'm a little hopeful with the with the cameras being there. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I, I'm all for cameras in court. I think that's one of the things that makes our system so wonderful is that it is open. It, you can see what is taking place behind the curtain and how justice is being served. But I will say uh, from personal experience, too, that you put cameras in that courtroom and everybody just seems to act a little bit different. And it yeah. just takes on this kind of this kind of uh, elephant in the room sort of uh, feeling that everybody's behaving a little bit differently than they might not otherwise. But I don't think it will have an effect on the actual outcome, like you said. Um, she, and we're finding out a little bit more the, uh, about this as the case has ended, sounds like she was very um, intent on not implicating her husband, Chad Dabo. And I say she, I mean, Lori, in her trial, Chad played very little role, which was yeah. surprising to many people. Do you right. think if he goes to trial, he's going to give her the same courtesy? Or do you think he throws her directly under the bus? Right. I, I think um, with from what I was picking up from Lori's trial, it, they kind of threw it in in the closing arguments. Her attorneys wanted to blame this on Chad. He he brainwashed her. He's this cult leader. But she did not want that. She is firmly, you know, enmeshed with Chad Daybell. Chad Daybell's attorney 
is a force from what I could see. And I think that he will do what I appreciate from attorneys, which is you run your own defense, even if your client doesn't like it, because you are the one who has to protect them. And you know better when it comes to which defense to pick, right? And so I think that his attorney is going to throw Lori under the bus. I, I just don't see how he doesn't do it. And Mr. Pryor, if I think his name is John Pryor, I, from what he did in the preliminary hearing, he's going to distance Chad from Lori as much as possible. These are her kids. It's her brother that was the executioner. And Chad was duped by this temptress. That's what I am anticipating his defense will be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the smart defense. I mean, I was shocked when she didn't do it. Um, but you're right. It There's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of control a, a client does maintain over certain aspects of a case, but for the most part, strategy should be wholly within the purview of the attorney. And it doesn't sound like uh, that happened so much in her trial. And maybe we'll see a different tactic, which I think is the smart tactic. After all, she's already been convicted right. uh, in his case. So I, I think we're going to see a very different uh, trial play itself out. And we will continue to watch that. That's, again, expected to take place this year. Well, turning now from the tragic to the bizarre out of Orlando, Florida, uh, the case of a woman accused of murdering her boyfriend by zipping him into a suitcase may soon be facing a jury after retaining yet another defense attorney. Sarah Boone's newest counsel represents at least the fourth different attorney to defend the accused murderer after her previous attorney withdrew amid taunts from Boone who called the man a, quote, dud and a, quote, buffoon. Allegedly, Boone video recorded her then-boyfriend, Jorge Torres Jr., surreptitiously as the man pled with Boone to let him out of the suitcase. The video is disturbing to say the least. We have a bit of that that we can show to you now. Carol. Fuck you. Carol. Fuck you. Carol. <laughs> Stupid. Carol. That's my name. Don't wear it up. I can't fucking breathe, babe. Seriously. Yeah, that's when you do when you choke me. Natalie, every time I watch that, I it gives me chills because you're realizing that soon after this has taken place, this man dies exactly where we see him in that video. And it just is is so awful to think about the last moments of her life, which I imagine jurors will be doing in her case. However, with her new attorney getting up to speed, Boone is expected to be back in court on January 16th for a pre-trial conference where her trial date is slated to be scheduled for sometime later this year. Um, Natalie, we've heard a lot about nightmare clients. I imagine that you may have experienced that, some of that yourself. I know that I've had some difficult clients in the past, but this seems like it's on a different level. What is an attorney expected to do in this situation when you have a client who's just not only just combative, it sounds like, but also just incredibly abusive to her own attorney? Right. I, I know that we have an ethical obligation to be zealous, vigorous advocates for our clients, um, to advise them and to put them in the best possible position, whatever that may be, whether they're deciding to go to trial or deciding to take a plea, we do the best that we can for them. Um, and sometimes some, some people decide that their trial strategy of their own is to try and 
uh, throw their attorney under the bus and so that they can delay, which is really what is happening here. She's trying to delay, 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 and she's using her attorneys as a conduit to do that. So I think our obligation in those situations is, first of all, to make sure that we're following everything by the book. So we're doing our visitations. We are sending them their discovery. We're going over things with them. And if they start to make that impossible to do, especially where she's writing these letters to the court and just demanding that her attorneys be taken off of her case, you know, make the best possible case where necessary of how you're trying to help this client as much as possible. I myself don't try to get off of cases, but if a client tries to remove you from the case and they've lost confidence in you, if the court thinks that you should be removed from the case. That's what should happen. But I always take an approach of, you know, I don't try to engage with any of that stuff. Oh, I hate you. Okay, well, you know, here's your statement of charges. Let's look at that. You know, (laughs) (laughs) like, you know, like here's here's your discovery. Let's look at that. Here are your possible defenses, you know, and if they make it impossible, a lot of the times they'll let the judge know and the judge will decide. I think that our job is to not get bogged down in the emotional minutia that they try to get you bogged down in because it's really not about you. They're just afraid and they don't want to deal with the consequences of what's coming to them um, potentially. And so your job is to just, you know, help them as much as you can until, they no longer want you and the court removes you. That's how I see it. I know some people see it differently, but that's how I see it. Yeah. Something that I think a lot of people who watch these trials very closely uh, may not appreciate is that the dynamic between the attorney and his client or her client in court may not be all that rosy. They may have troubles and they may be struggling and they're just getting into court and trying to put on the best case that they have and you may question why are they doing this and why are they why are they putting on that witness and there's a lot at play that we'll never be privy to because of attorney client privilege but there's a lot going on sometimes a drama that's unfolding that none of us are aware of between the attorney and their client and on top of all of this she's not doing herself any favors because not only does he have to deal with her, but there's also this video that we just watched. And do you think there's any way that they can deal with that video in the way that jurors are just going to viscerally react to this in court? I, I really, you know, Godspeed to whoever has <laughs> to defend her with that video. That's really tough. You know, the, yeah. I'm trying to think creatively here. Um, you know, maybe she was so intoxicated, she wasn't correctly perceiving the situation and so that it was not intentional. But in many states, voluntary intoxication is not a defense. And in a murder, it only mitigates first degree down to second degree. So it doesn't completely exonerate you. This is really, really tough. That video is highly incriminating. And, you know, allow me to speculate here a bit from professional experience. I think that's what's leading to all these complaints on all these attorneys is that she knows that once she gets in front of a jury and that video is played, her goose is pretty much cooked. And so this is just a delay tactic to keep from getting in front of the jury. And she's going to run out of it because eventually the court's not going to keep giving her new attorney after new attorney. She's going to maybe have to end up representing herself. So she really should be careful um, with these tactics. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. She might, she might just be trying to push off the inevitable as long as she can. Um, I mean, I mean, because you're right. I'm trying to think about possible defenses. It was a game. She was intoxicated. She accidentally fell asleep, whatever you want to say. 
but even the taunting that's taking place on that yeah. video, it's just you 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 watch it. And again, jurors are going to do exactly what we did when they see that thing. They're going to say, this was the last moments of that man's life. That's torture. It's awful. Um, again, it, like I said, a bizarre and, and horrible case, but we'll keep our eyes on it. And of course, update everyone that again, expected for trial in 2024. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Lastly, in a year that looks to be very, very busy, we turn to Detroit, Michigan, where following the sentence of Ethan Crumley for his commission of the fatal Oxford High School shooting that left four dead and seven injured, questions remain ahead of the upcoming trial for the gunman's parents. Jennifer and James Crumbly each face four counts of involuntary manslaughter for their alleged gross negligence in the days leading up to the tragic school massacre. The parents who will be tried separately are accused of ignoring warning signs of their troubled child and perhaps more egregiously providing him with the weapon that took the lives of his classmates. While a community is desperate for additional accountability for the loss of life, this case is the first of its type, holding parents liable for the actions of their school shooter son. Natalie, jump right in. Uh, do you think this prosecution is justified and necessary, or is this prosecutorial overreach in your view? This one is extremely tough for me, you know, extremely tough because on an emotional level, even on an academic level, I understand this prosecution. I understand uh, trying to set this precedent because many times when, you know, sometimes a school shooter is unable to be apprehended because, you know, they end themselves or they get life or the death penalty, but it doesn't really feel like justice. And it feels like going around in circles, right? And in this particular situation, not just thinking about the broad view, but in this particular situation, it is egregious that they knew their son had all of these issues and they provided him with a weapon instead of real treatment and therapy. Very strange behavior for a child that they knew was struggling. So I understand that. On the other hand, it could be a slippery slope because weapons are provided to all types of people and there's protections for gun manufacturers, gun sellers, things of that nature. Why could a you know weapons manufacturer sell a gun to a mentally ill person, but a parent can't give it away? There's the uh, responsibility that a parent has to a child that a gun manufacturer doesn't have to a um a, a customer that you really do have to consider. Uh, you know, if I gave a child, if my own child alcohol and they went out and drove and, and killed people, would I then be responsible? Maybe, I mean, it's my child, I'm supposed to uh, look after them. So I can see it, I, I see the policy reasons for it. I'm just concerned about the outside uh, uh, unintended consequences of extending liability in that way. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more about how difficult it, depending on my mood and what I've heard most recently, I seem to change my my ideas on this case. And listen, this case is, the underlying crime is awful. 
I mean, it, you know, the loss of life and these school shootings and every single, you know, good-hearted person in this country wants to do something about that. And so I understand the frustration and I understand how everybody's looking for for some sort of an answer. But then I go, wait a second here. Um, you know, there are thousands and thousands of parents in this country who are dealing with troubled children and their children do and say crazy things all the time. And I was watching recently a hearing in this case where the judges are questioning the attorneys of these parents saying, well, they saw these drawings he was doing and they heard him making these comments. And the 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 question there being, shouldn't they have known he was dangerous? And I'm thinking to myself, how many parents exist out there that had their kids draw something bizarre, weird, and perhaps even scary? Mm -hmm. How many parents had their kids say something bizarre, weird, perhaps even scary? And you're right. Eventually, they sh they should be good parents. And I don't think these parents were good parents. Mm -hmm. But at, at what point is it? are they then held responsible for the deaths? Because we're not talking about charges of negligent parenting. Right. We're talking about involuntary manslaughter. They're being held responsible for the deaths. That's the part that I wonder if it's a bridge too far. Mm -hmm. And again, what let's say they are successful in this prosecution. What do you think the ripple effects will be? um throughout the country about this right I, I first of all i i anticipate backlash uh because there are people out there that believe wholeheartedly in their second amendment rights and don't think that you know um they should be the arbiters of who should and should not be able to get a weapon but i also think what will the law start to see a troubled child as or a potential school shooter as, you know, a very depressed child should, you know, parents not provide them with weapons, a, a, a child that may be alternative in some way, but not exhibiting any signs of danger. Like what is the precipice by which we're determining, you know, this is the cutoff that parents cannot provide weapons to children? Or do we just say parents can't provide weapons to children at all, anywhere, right. at any time? And, and to do so, uh, risk that child harming someone simply because they're a child and then you're responsible. I really, I don't know what the limit is here. Uh, but I, again, I completely understand the prosecution. I get it. It's the parenting here was very disturbing, very, very disturbing. He was a very troubled boy. And um, then them taking off and leaving him after, you know, they were wanted by the police and all of that. None of that looks good. But I, I am like you, very, very concerned about the ripple effects of it and the and the slippery slope of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a it's a case that certainly more than most legal scholars and and people who who are following kind of the criminal jurisprudence of all of these things are very interested to see the outcome and how this all plays out. Well, yeah. um, that is a, a brief look at the year ahead. It's going to be a very busy year. I know we're probably going to hear in the comments that we missed some cases. This wasn't obviously everything, and that doesn't include what may even pop up in the new year. But in the meantime, that is our show Natalie, thank you again so much for coming on this week. Can Tell us where people can find out more about you. Sure. Um, so here on YouTube, you can find me at Natalie Lawyer Chick. On Twitter, you can find me at Nat Lawyer Chick. And on Instagram, you can find me at Natalie Lawyer Chick YouTube. I'm also on TikTok, but I don't understand that app. So don't even worry about that. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> we'll check them all out anyways. But thank you again. 
I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at JoshuaRitterESQ or at JoshuaRitter.com. You can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar.